1: It was February 18th, 2001, and the annual Daytona 500, NASCAR's Super Bowl was underway. Terry Bradshaw waves the green flag, we're racing. The stakes could not be higher. The near mythological event could slay you or cement your status as a racing god. As he sat in the rainbow warrior, waiting for the green flag, Jeff Gordon scanned the other cars around him, attempting to locate his stiffest competition the last car he glanced at belonged to his rival the legend dale earnhardt after a rocky start to their relationship gordon and earnhardt had become good friends gaining a newfound respect for each other's talents at this point even their families got along but none of that mattered right now the only thing on gordon's mind at the top of the race was victory but by the end of the daytona 500 winning or losing wouldn't matter an unfathomable tragedy had occurred It was an event that would permanently tether itself to Jeff's temporal lobe, affecting him for the rest of his life. Jeff Gordon's career thus far was as close to a fairy tale as one can get. Before the age of 30, he had won three championships, barely missing out on a fourth, while becoming the face of NASCAR. With the joy of his early success, also came the burden of high expectations. But if he thought getting to the top was hard, he'd soon find out that staying there was even harder. The other drivers knew he was the best, and for the rest of his career, they were gunning for him. He'd have to navigate the challenges that come with fame and personal tragedies. He also wasn't a kid anymore. Professional athletes of any ilk must always adapt as they age. The changes to the body and the mind over time can hinder their ability to perform at an elite level. Jeff Gordon would discover that while time comes for us all, it comes for athletes much sooner. Today on fast Gas, could Jeff Gordon continue to meet sky-high expectations and become the greatest driver of all time? Would his risk-taking, clutch your crotch and floor it style finally catch up to him? Would mounting adversity in his personal life bleed onto the track? Did a massive change in the NASCAR rules hurt Gordon's legacy? And did he really punch a guy at the airport? Our flight to Gordonland is now boarding. Estimated time of departure? Now.
2: It's about cars, it's not about Clutch your crotch and floor it We're going to put that on a shirt
3: Yeah, I was I was wondering if it's like You actually grabbing with your hand Or if you're doing some sort of like kegels <laughs> yeah, thing yeah, I and think like,
2: sure, The people listening can't see this But I picture it's like this And you like shift And then you're like <laughs> So
3: James is describing <laughs> with his shifting hand He grabs his After crotch performing the shift, yeah in my mind, it was the mus- the prostate muscle. The what, you know Joe? what? I'm talking about, like, like a male kegels, like your <laughs> prostate muscle oh, tensing up. You're te-
2: yeah, you tensing up your that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm
0: flexing mine.
3: You're gonna pull a I'm muscle, dude. Mine right now.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> what if you pulled that? That'd- dude, oh, that show would hurt. must go on. <laughs>
2: I'd grin and bear it. I'd clutch my, I'd clutch my crotch and floor it, dude. Yeah, I guess so. I actually wrote this is part two of Jeff Gordon. I actually wrote a poem to catch the audience, oh, really? up and kind r- of oh. remind them of, of what happened last okay. week. Okay, I love it. Okay, so Jeffrey Gordon took an axe and gave NASCAR forty wax, and when <laughs> all was said and done, he gave pop culture forty one.
3: Oh. Wow, <laughs>
2: pretty good, huh? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Thank you. I wrote it in the shower.
3: <laughs> nice. And did you remember that, or did you
2: read it off your computer? I, I remember. That it. was off the dome, dude. That was a freestyle. Oh wow. I'm like Jay Z. I don't write any lyrics down. Nice. What? That's wild. Oh, oh no! Oh no! No! Don't, don't pull
1: out muscle James.
3: It. You come into the office and both your your eyes <laughs> are just like it full of blood. The front of my pants <laughs> is covered in blood. <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, this is not a men's health podcast, although it probably should be. This is past gas. Welcome back, everybody. We are an Automotive History Show. I am Nolan Sykes, uh, joined, as always, by my two buddies. We got Joe Weber.
3: What's up, Wankwink Nation? Hope you're good and healthy. And, of course, we got James Pumphrey.
1: (laughs) 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 Uh, Like... James mentioned this is part two of Jeff Gordon, our conclusion of our two-part series of one of the best NASCAR drivers of all time, one of the most iconic uh, NASCAR drivers of all time. I'm looking forward to seeing where our story takes us this week. Yeah. Guys, how are you doing this week?
3: Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I just came back from Arizona testing the new Hummer.
2: Oh, yeah. How was that? You're testing at 4GM, right? You're, you're a test driver.
3: Yeah. They said they gave me a helmet and made me sign my life away. They call you the Chuck Yeager of EVs. Yeah, because I <laughs> I broke the sound barrier in a Hummer. It was pretty hard, but I did <laughs> they it. Were, they were like, We did not <laughs> intend for that to be possible. You just hit like a
2: like a tailwind, yeah, and you're going downhill and you just clutch your crotch and floor. Got it. up
3: to seven hundred miles per hour. Yeah. It wasn't wow. it wasn't really easy. <laughs> Uh, it was cool, though. I don't know. I think this comes out after the embargo, but uh, it's scary fast, and it's 9,000 pounds. It doesn't feel like it. That's wild. That's insane that they built something like that. James, how are
1: you doing this week, my man? Solid as a rock. Like a rock.
3: Chevy. Like the country. Iraq. rock. Yeah. Oh, God. That's yep. a joke in Arrested Development, you guys. That's what I thought you were referencing.
2: That's why I said, oh, God, you have." Oh. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what
2: are we quoting sitcoms now? You Bazinga. I got to pop this shirt my off. My wife. <laughs> <laughs> You're your shirt off. Yeah, I was Wait, wondering why you had is- it on. Jo- Joe never wears a shirt usually when we record. And I got on the Zoom Joe call. is taking <laughs>
1: his shirt off. What is happening?
3: It's too hot in my room.
1: Clearly, um, that... Okay. Yeah. Is that all right?
2: Do you want me to
3: tip it for the re- uh, tip the camera? Nah, you're
1: good. You're good. Um, all just of a sudden, the-
2: this feels like it's for a different audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just uh,
1: Joe is shirtless for the remainder of this episode. This is not a bit. This is happening, and we're just gonna power through it.
3: I didn't want to make a big deal out of it. I bet he gets cold. <laughs> yeah, we'll
1: see that shirt. We'll see the return of that shirt for sure. All right. Let's get into our story, huh? Yeah. In the words of Gordon's head engineer,
2: Brian Whitesell, quote, Jeff's 10 feet tall, just brimming with confidence and aggressiveness. You would really get a feel throughout the weekend that when he walked in on Sunday, unless something came out of left field, this was ours. After one of the best seasons in racing history, Gordon picked up right where he left
1: off by winning the Daytona 500 in 1999. As a result, the media assumed this was going to be another legendary season for him. He'd go on to win three more races the first couple of months, but then things began to fall apart. He ended up with seven did-not finishes and struggled to consistently finish in the top ten. The car had issues, sure, but the bigger problem involved the car's driver and his crew chief.
3: Wait, so was his car called the Rainbow Warrior or was it Jeff was... The Rainbow Warrior. The car is the Rainbow Warrior. Oh, he's just the pilot.
1: He's the pilot of the Rainbow Warrior, yes. Ever since their fight in the previous season, Ray Everham and Jeff Gordon's relationship had stalled out. They had fought constantly, and it affected their ability to be competitive. According to Everham, Gordon, quote, had become less interested in being coached, which was a diplomatic way of saying Gordon wouldn't listen to his input anymore. Evernham also felt that after seven years as crew chief, with 47 victories and three championships, he wasn't given the credit within Hendrick's organization that he believed he deserved. Gordon was a great driver with an incredible team, and Evernham managed both of them. So after a couple of bad races and a dispute over the design of the 1998 championship ring, Evernham left mid-season. He took an offer to own a team for Dodge and brought three very important crew members with him. Later, Everham
2: would say, quote, It's the same thing that tears rock bands apart. I'm the one working a gazillion hours with these guys, and Gordon is making $25 million a year, and I'm only making $1 million.
1: <laughs> Gordon and team owner Rick Hendrick felt sideswiped. Everything they had spent seven years meticulously building to sustain championship after championship was now no longer. When the rare sports dynasty occurs, the discourse always turns to the question of who is the most responsible for all the winning. Think Tom Brady and Bill Belichick or Shaq and Kobe.
3: And also $1 million a year is not anything to balk at. No, that's a lot of money, especially back then. And
2: Tom Brady and Bill Belichick is a pretty apt comparison, but I think Bill Belichick is more responsible than that guy. And Shaq and Kobe, not apt because they're both athletes. They're both stars. Phil Jackson, though, put them together. Phil Jackson and, and Kobe? Mm-hmm. Dude, t- t- Phil Jackson, LeBron, Kobe, Jordan... He doesn't Kareem. even have enough
3: fingers for all his rings. He's going to have to grow some more fingers. Kareem, Magic, Larry Bird. I'm just, this is my dream team. <laughs> <laughs> Clyde the Glide,
2: Drexler, uh, Dr. J, Wilt Chamberlain, dude, Mickey Mantle. All right, let's move on. Uh <laughs> The speculation
1: began once Everham quit. Did Gordon need Everham or did Everham need Gordon? Everyone picked the side, James. There was little room in sports media for a nuanced position. Everyone's got to have a hot take. It's entirely possible, (laughs) likely even, that they actually needed each other. Mm -hmm. For a certain period of time, their collaboration produced something special. And like many relationships, they'd grown apart and it was time to move on. But that's not a good lead-in on Center. The question lingered, and Gordon heard it loud and clear. He had scoffed at this notion that he had won so much because of masterminds and handlers and expensive equipment. He was the best driver in the world, and he'd earned every lap.
3: That's like when you say, when James comes to me and says, this script is bullshit. I'm going to freestyle it. And then those are the worst episodes. <laughs> just kidding. That never it's happens. It's never happened.
2: <laughs> I just freestyle a car like a story. <laughs> yeah. That's what people thought you did.
3: Yeah. People actually think that you, they, they set the camera up and you just go and tell the history <laughs> of the Pontiac Aztec. I'm just
2: like a savant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I've read every car magazine ever and retained all of the information.
3: Yeah. He's just good like that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he just knows everybody, every executive from Detroit in the 60s name. (laughs) And all of the Japanese guys from the 80s, he knows all their names. Like all elite performers searching
1: for an edge, Gordon would use these whispers to his advantage. There was only one antidote guaranteed to stop the conversation about his legitimacy. Winning races. So that's what he did he immediately won in martinsville and then in charlotte while working with an interim crew chief he hardly knew suddenly the critics were silent after that quick dopamine rush of winning two in a row faded reality set in the team was out of sync gordon just didn't have a rapport with his crew chief and the engineers they lost were critical to crafting the fastest car they ended the 1999 season in a deflating sixth
2: place dude it's like i always say it's not just the guy in front like it's not just the the face it's everybody behind it (laughs) that really makes the difference right it's like a team you always say that team effort yeah and it's it's like the whole team is as important as everybody else
1: yeah Yeah. Yeah. you
3: said that at least once that's what i always say
1: (laughs) sixth place was not exactly the the follow-up to a great season he was hoping for but Hendricks had zero doubts, and in response to the whole Evernham fiasco, he signed Jeff Gordon to a lifetime contract. After all, he was his Michael Jordan. They poached Robbie Loomis from Richard Petty's team to be the new crew chief, and Gordon
2: was ready to start from scratch with a whole new squad. Lifetime contract. That's insane. Gordon's early rapport with Loomis was messy. Uh. Plus, there was a new stock Ford Taurus on the circuit with an aerodynamic design structure that his Chevy Monte Carlo couldn't compete with. This led to a pretty ugly first half to the 2000 season. At one point, Gordon had four races in a row without a top 20 finish. The first such drought of his career. Relationships take time to build and patience wasn't a common virtue in race car drivers. Needless to say, Gordon was agitated all year. As the season progressed, Gordon and Loomis began having minor epiphanies about how they could improve. It all finally came together at Talladega, where Gordon took the checkered flag. This made him just the seventh driver in history to win the Grand Slam, which includes the four major races at Daytona, Charlotte, Darlington, and Talladega.
3: Wow. And the prize for that is the
2: Denny's Grand Slam. For life, you get a card. But only once a week. You can't do it every day. (laughs) Yeah. He and Loomis had figured something out, and Gordon would finish the season very strong. He had a top 10 finish in each of his final 11 races of the season. Gordon was elated. In some of his darkest moments early in the season, thoughts of doubt about his driving had crept in. Maybe he was too much of a risk taker, and maybe he needed Everham to rein him in. But winning cures all, and Gordon knew in 2001 that he could win with Loomis, and most importantly, without
3: Everham. I mean, Everenham is a mouthful to say. Loomis just rolls off the tongue. Right. Loomis is from Harry Potter, and Everenham
2: has that sneaky end right in the middle. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's fun to say on a podcast.
2: Mm-hmm. Gordon and Loomis were all smiles at the Daytona International Speedway on that beautiful February afternoon in 2001. The team had a quiet confidence about it that was similar to the 1998 season. It felt like they all knew the same secret. A dirty little secret, and they weren't going to tell. They were going to win it all that year, and they were going to prove it, starting in Daytona. But the day didn't go the way they or anybody else had hoped. They finished 30th overall, but by the end of the race, the results had practically been forgotten. On the final turn of the final lap, while trying to make a final push to victory, Dale Earnhardt was clipped. Attempting to gain control of his car, Earnhardt over-adjusted and his famous Goodwin-sponsored number three car slammed headfirst into the wall at 150 miles per hour. He was killed instantly. The world watched in stunned silence as attendants tried to revive him in vain. It's no secret that danger is a massive part of the sport. For some reason, it's even an exciting element that keeps them coming back. However, for a legend like Dale, ah, this is like the saddest thing ever, dude. Mm-hmm. This is the saddest moment in sports. However, for a legend like Dale Earnhardt to perish on the track just didn't feel real. His lore had been elevated to demigod status. It's as if a famous character like Hercules or Paul Bunyan died. His death would be felt in the industry for years to come. NASCAR would usher in a new era of driver safety tactics in an effort to prevent this from happening again. Even in death, Earnhardt would continue to influence the sport that he had dominated in life. Yeah, man, this, like, really affected NASCAR.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
2: Because of Gordon and Earnhardt, like, NASCAR was, you know, everything we talked about in the last episode, NASCAR was really becoming, uh, like, a mainstream sport. Mm-hmm. And I think this race may have been the most, like, they had just signed this huge TV deal. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think this race may have been the most viewed race in NASCAR history. Oh, God. And like, if not that, then like definitely one of the most viewed. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, like a guy died on TV and it really set them back like a lot, a lot. Yeah. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors.
0: In just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: Gordon was understandably shaken by Earnhardt's death. Every driver was. If one of the greatest drivers of all time could die on track, then what could that mean for them? Gordon wrestled back intrusive thoughts of his mortality all season long. Professional sports don't provide much space for reflection or mourning. Those would have to wait. If he wanted to honor the legacy and life of his good friend, he would need to do what Earnhardt would have done in the same situation. The one thing in his life that had always proven to heal all wounds. Winning. So that's what Gordon did. He put his head down. He showed up to work and he focused. He came in third in Rockingham the week after the tragedy. Then he won the following week in commanding fashion in Vegas. He dominated Indianapolis and Watkins Glen. By the time he lifted his head back up, he was staring directly at a fourth championship. The first one without Everton by his side or Earnhardt competing on the track. It was bittersweet and a turning point in Gordon's life. He exited 2002 with a new perspective one that would bring even more painful changes and present another obstacle for him to outmaneuver.
3: Can you imagine like seeing someone die and then you just have to go race the next week? Like how, how much would that mentally mess you up?
2: Yeah. I mean, especially when, you know, like every, every great like person they say needs like a great adversary, like a rival to keep pushing and pushing and pushing.
3: To like bring out the best in you. So our, our producer, Tommy, says 17 million people watched Daytona, Daytona 2001 and 4 million last year. When you're used to winning,
2: losses become magnified. You can get lost in the smoke of the wreckage, unsure if there's a path to the other side. After losing his coach and his friend in a span of 18 months, Gordon also lost his marriage. He and his wife, Brooke, who met in victory lane after his first win, could no longer make things work. Earnhardt's death taught Gordon how fragile life was and his unhappiness at home became untenable. He filed for a divorce and the tabloids had a field day. It consumed his life. Gordon couldn't even hold a door open for a woman without photos being taken and assumptions being made.
3: And that sucks because he loves
2: holding doors open. Dude, he is like top three. Yeah. It's hard enough to go through a divorce in private. Rumors of him being unfaithful swirled. Lawsuits were filed, and Gordon and Brooke made hell for each other's lives. In the meantime, Gordon did what newly single people do. He let loose and partied.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Jeff Gordon's playing tummy sticks. Yeah, Jeffy.
2: He took <laughs> private planes to Vegas and spent time in Europe with his team, but he still had to race cars. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Again, professional sports don't provide much space for reflection and mourning. In 2002, when things went wrong, the quick twitch, troubleshooting, and smart decision-making wasn't there. Blown engines, unnecessary crashes, and unfocused driving left him with just three victories at the end of 2002. People naturally began to wonder if losses off the track were why he was losing on it. Hmm. Hendrick's Motorsport had also brought on a new teammate, for Jeff Gordon, a gifted young phenom named after a sausage company
3: named <laughs> Jimmy Johnson. <laughs> a guy who Are you thinking of would... Johnsonville and Jimmy Dean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this so this is where the metaphor, the Lakers metaphor works because now you got now you got a Shaq and a Kobe.
1: Yeah. Full circle. Yeah. yeah. And Jimmy Johnson is seven feet
2: four
1: <laughs> so. and he's a
3: DJ and a sheriff yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and he ha- he has that uh, video game called John
3: Foo <laughs> even though his name is Jimmy
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Jimmy Johnson was a young driver who many people were comparing to uh, a young Jeff Gordon while a lot of drivers might have felt threatened Gordon embraced Johnson. <laughs> took him under his wing and made him his protege. He taught him all the things he wished somebody had taught him when he was just starting out. They developed a close bond and it brought a much needed distraction to his life. After months of his face being plastered on the front page of nearly every magazine at the supermarket checkout line, Gordon had somehow become even more famous. Driving cars was no longer his only job. He'd become a regular fill-in host for Regis Philbin on Live with Regis and Kelly. (laughs) Sweet. He hosted Saturday Night Live, shot numerous commercials, explored business endeavors, and hobnobbed with the (laughs) ultra-wealthy. As a result, NASCAR was more popular and profitable than ever before. It was now one of the top sports in the country, with its ratings trailing only the NFL. Wow between Earnhardt's death, his divorce, and all the tabloid attention, Gordon struggled to feel like his life belonged to him. He finished 2003 again with only three victories. Gordon still, very early in his career, felt like he was not living up to his expectations. He had to find that focus he had before, and in 2004, he came out with purpose. It's important not to get lost in the sauce. Dude, tell me about it. Have you ever been lost in the sauce, Nolan? Uh, yes. Me too. Yeah.
3: Well, if you're hobnobbing all the time, it's so easy to get lost in the sauce, especially when you're rubbing elbows with. The ultra wealthy.
2: Yeah. I mean, but I'm, I'm, I'm being kind of, I'm being sincere. I think like, you know, Nolan and I, it's like, obviously a much smaller version, like a much, much smaller version, but like Uber drivers know who we are. And like, that's real weird. And like sometimes you just kind of like feel like you don't, or like when, <clears throat> if we go to like a racing event or something, <clears throat> yeah, and people you guys just get like,
3: stopped every two seconds.
2: Yeah. It's like, yeah, sometimes you feel like you're not yourself.
3: I think you're in a weird position because you're not getting the star treatment where maybe someone uh, who's been around for a little bit longer might get like a private booth. Yeah. You're still down hanging out with people. Yeah, with the Cretans. <laughs> the Cretans, yeah. Hobnobbing with the Cretans. That's my new EP, by the Dude, way. Dude, <laughs> I'm going to start calling
2: our fans Cretans. The Cretans. <laughs> and I think I want to take Donut in a real psychobilly direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: We'll get some, like, flash tattoo uh, Yeah, everyone's rocking
2: the
1: slick back hair. We're wearing shirts with big collars on them. We're all driving cars in the
3: 50s. Our guest on today's D-list is (laughs) Nick13. That's a Tiger Army joke for all my Tiger Army nation. Oh, they're out there. They're out
2: there. Gordon was feeling like himself in 2004, and it showed. He was back to dominating the big races like Daytona and Talladega. He put on a show all season, and if NASCAR hadn't changed the rules with its new end-of-season chase-for-the-cup tournament, (laughs) Gordon would have won his fifth championship. (laughs) Sorry, I was involuntary. Uh, But life comes fast, often with no mercy. Towards the end of the 2004 season, an unfathomable tragedy would strike again. While heading to the next race in Martinsville, the Hendrick Motorsports private plane crashed, killing All ten on board. The victims, including the pilots, head engineers, both the president and vice president of the company, and Hendrick's own 24-year-old son, Ricky, a close personal friend of Gordon's. I remember this, man. This is awful. That's horrible. For a man so used to winning on the track, the losses in his personal life were becoming difficult to manage. You think? Dude, a plane crash?
1: What an episode. Good God. After starting his career hotter than any driver ever, Gordon only had one championship in the last six seasons. With Ray Evernham as his crew chief, Gordon averaged an astonishing 10 wins a season, but without him, he was averaging less than four. Things were simpler when he was younger. He was a talented driver thirsty to prove himself. Racing was all he knew, and it's all he cared about. Now, he was the sport's biggest star with the wealth of a major corporation – He had endured a lifetime's worth of headaches in the last three years. It was all starting to catch up. 2005 was a whirlwind of big wins and rough performances. Jeff wasn't feeling as sharp, and his car wasn't feeling as fast. His risky style of driving was causing him to crash more. After one bad crash in Chicago, Gordon's frustrations reached a boiling point. He believed driver Mike Bliss caused the wreck. After Earnhardt's death, he had a low tolerance for reckless driving. Which is kind of ironic. Following the race, when Gordon saw Bliss at the airport,
2: he punched Bliss square in the face.
3: Whoa. Pulled a Buzz Aldrin.
2: (laughs) Sure. Dude, an airport is a tough place to punch somebody.
3: Yeah, you get put on the terrorist list for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And this is after 9-11, too. So you know that security and the the scrutiny was much higher. Um, Yeah, that's not where I'd punch
3: someone. Mm -mm. Where would you punch someone? In the tummy. Bar. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, why not? (laughs) At the donut office, i would punch
2: someone there. Where would you punch someone,
3: Joe? Uh, I keep forgetting you have your shirt off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm still hot. Uh, I think I would hold up like a phone book to their tummy and punch it so they don't get a bruise. And
1: then you like break your knuckles? No, I'd probably do like a... Oh, a little palm Open strike. palm. Nice. Yeah. Nice.
3: But that's a lot of planning. And usually when you punch someone, you don't have enough time to plan stuff.
1: Yeah. You can't like stop and be like, time out, time out. Let me
3: get my That's also my phone an book. awful
2: lot of premeditation. And mo- the more premeditation you have, the more it's a crime. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But if someone, you know, like I'm trying to throw a, uh, yellow pages away and they're, they slap it out of my hand, then I have you know carte blanche
1: yeah you've got justification <laughs> so yeah jeff punched the guy in the face and this would not be the last time gordon would come to blows with another driver as scary as that chicago wreck was it was nothing compared to his next one 2006 had actually started quite well gordon had a new fiance he was now a regular on live with regis and kelly and he and his new crew chief were starting to gel like our rockabilly band. Then came the Poconos. With 11 laps left, Gordon's brake rotor blew and he lost control of the car. He slammed headfirst into the wall at 150 miles per hour. The crash was eerily similar to Dale Earnhardt's. However, the new safety protocols implemented after his death probably saved Gordon's life. He suffered a concussion and a small fracture which would have residual effects for the rest of the season. At the end of 2006, it was his teammate, Jimmy Johnson, who would take home the championship. It was the first of Jimmy's career. Gordon, a good teammate and mentor, celebrated as if it was his own.
3: So if I remember correctly, they were trying to get the Hans device implemented before the 2001 season, and they just, it didn't happen. And then directly after Dale Earnhardt passing away, that's when they started using the Hans device. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that Hans device, uh, it keeps your skull from detaching from your spine. Yeah. That's one of the main benefits from it. Um, and I definitely recommend you wear one even at, at, any, at any track day you go to. Autocross, you can definitely get away with it. But like track day, uh, even if you have a harness in your car, especially if you have a harness in your car, wear one. Even if you don't hit something head on, it can save your life. My buddy was telling me a story about how a driver died at a local track event here in SoCal a few uh, years ago. He hit a steward stand sideways, and the impact then of his head going sideways was enough to kill him. So please be careful out there and wear safety equipment, even if it feels like overkill.
3: Yeah, being safe is the new hot.
2: Plus, helmets and Han's devices look sick. So Really do sick. Yeah. Dude, there's nothing cooler than getting out of your car, wearing gloves, a short-sleeved shirt, and a Hans device, and a helmet, and running over and punching your buddy in the tummy.
1: <laughs> yeah, you yeah. gotta punch him in the tummy. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. 2007 was a bounce-back season for Jeff. He led the championships in points that year, but came in second place in that stupid chase for the
2: cup Format to his teammate, you want to explain what that is really quickly?
1: Yeah, I don't know why
3: you guys are giggling so much,
1: okay? Uh, yeah, so chase for the cup. So instead of like points just being allocated at the end of the season and whoever has the most points wins, you gotta when you're in the chase for the cup, you gotta stay above a threshold line basically. And if you don't perform as well as the other drivers in the chase for the cup, you get knocked out. So, like at the beginning of the chase, there's 16 drivers going for it, then after a certain amount of rounds there's only 8 drivers left 4 drivers left 2 drivers left so on until a, a winner is determined through that way but it's does it get down to 2 it goes down to 4 sorry at no. least in the current rules it goes down to 4 you don't have to necessarily win during the chase for the cup you just have to do better than the other drivers in it like conceivably all you get, all the drivers in the chase for the cup could finish in the bottom 20 but as long as you're doing better than the other drivers that were finishing the bottom 20, like you move on. Uh, it's needlessly complicated. And it was, it was NASCAR's attempt to like add more drama to the championship series. Ironically, because of drivers like Jeff Gordon, who would just dominate all season and it would walk away with the wins. So it's, it's Jeff's success early on that led to him uh, having trouble with the Chase for the Cup format.
3: So Jeff, at this point, is looking at himself in the mirror, trying to figure out how to punch himself in the tummy. Yeah, yeah. For getting himself in this situation.
1: Yeah. After Jimmy Johnson's second championship win, he, like Jeff Gordon circa 1997, was being talked about as the world's best driver and had taken over as Hendrix golden boy. Technically, if NASCAR had never changed the rules, this would have been Gordon's sixth championship. But the rules had changed, which meant Jeff didn't have six championships. He had four. So, Gordon's fans began a drive-for-five campaign to bring some good vibes for the fifth championship. 2008 was going to be the year. He had been building his rapport with his crew chief and felt like this could be another 2001 type of season. But a catchy slogan wouldn't be enough because for the first time in his career, Jeff Gordon didn't win a single race. Damn. Yeah. That's rough. Ever since he was five years old, he won at every level, and losing this much was incredibly painful.
3: My baseball team hasn't won a game in almost two years. So I I kind of feel for him.
1: You feel, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's 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 kind of the same. It's it's the same. Yeah. 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 You guys have hats and uniforms?
3: Yeah. You guys are official. Some would say the coolest, but they are sick. uh, Those same people say, you're spending too much time designing your uniforms and hats and not playing baseball Practicing. and training.
2: Yeah. Dude, no one's going to remember who won.
3: Yeah, that's true.
2: But they will wear that hat. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's made it into a ton of different donut videos. So, HMU, if you want.
1: <laughs> if losing hurt that much, one might think that from 2008 through 2011, Gordon was exploring masochism, he lost a lot. He was unremarkable in 2009, then went winless again in 2010. He snapped a losing streak of 66 straight events by winning three races in 2011. To make matters worse, though, his teammate and protege, Jimmy Johnson, was doing something historically remarkable. He won five consecutive Winston Cup championships from 2006 to 2010. Wow. He was in the midst of the greatest stretch of driving in NASCAR history. Johnson's career was shaping up to look a lot like the career Gordon had envisioned for himself. Jeff finally understood what Dale Earnhardt felt when Gordon showed up and took over NASCAR during The Intimidator's late prime. Gordon and Johnson's relationship had grown a bit sour as a result. Gordon fans were entering the same state of denial that Earnhardt fans had experienced. The hard-to-swallow pill of aging had landed on Gordon's cup, and it was his turn to drink it. (laughs) It was clear at this point that Gordon wasn't even close to the best anymore, and his career was winding down.
2: Gordon was now 40, and as most 40-year-olds can attest, a completely different human being than he was when he was, say, 20. He was now a father, a businessman, and a philanthropist. Ten years from a championship, he found himself often reminiscing about past achievements in racing and fantasizing less about future ones. He admitted he wasn't as motivated any longer after 2010, by far his worst season. They had a good car and a good team, but couldn't pull it out, which to him meant that he was the issue. But he wasn't ready to retire to the old garage upstate. He still had a small flame for competition inside of him, and that flame kept dragging him into the speedway every weekend. He coasted in the middle of the pack in 2012 and 2013. By this time, Jimmy Johnson had won another championship and had lapped Gordon on the all-time greatest drivers list. Even Gordon had acquiesced and began calling his teammate the greatest driver of all time. It's like uh, Birdman and Lil Wayne. No, it's like like Jay-Z and Lil Wayne on Mr. Carter. You know? (laughs) Listen to that song. It's great. Uh, He made the decision that he would retire in 2015. He wanted one more push for glory and in 2014 focused harder than he had in years. He still had a little bit of magic left in the tank and actually led NASCAR in points that season. Again, if the old rules were in place, this would have been championship number seven. However, he lost the chase for the cup. (laughs) Coming up short yet again. Man, that's lame. It's so lame. Yeah. Hey, let's make it um, really confusing to watch. And like maybe the guy who, who actually won isn't going to win. He retired after the 2015 season to incredible fanfare at 44 years old. It's true he hadn't been one of the best drivers in the world in quite some time, but he was beloved by the NASCAR community and they came out all season long to give him an honorable sendoff. The last 10 years of his career had been incredibly frustrating. He won major races here and there and certainly hit record-breaking career milestones. But the thing he wanted most was to win championships, and it had been so long since that happened, he almost forgot what it felt like.
1: Jeff Gordon was a home run hitter, a quarterback unafraid to throw the deep ball, the basketball player who dunks instead of going for the easy layup. He was a visceral driver who chose the old-school gut-feeling approach to driving. That style got him to some of the highest highs, A race car driver has ever reached it also cost him a lot of races some people felt like the second half of his career was held back by personal tragedy and a love of the limelight there's no way to know if that is true after all if nascar had kept the rules the way they had been for decades gordon would have tied petty earnhardt and johnson with seven titles regardless gordon's legacy as one of the five greatest nascar drivers of all time is set in stone in 805 races Over 25 years, he had 93 first-place finishes, 302 top-five finishes, and four championships. Those numbers are all top five. Perhaps more importantly, he had brought NASCAR into the mainstream of American culture. He opened the sport up to millions of people who otherwise would have dismissed it. Crazily enough, he's still only 50 years old. Ancient for a race car driver, but young for someone who's experienced many lifetimes worth of victories and defeats. Jared Leto's 50 years old. Is he really? Yeah. No way. Yeah. Whew. But young for someone who's experienced many lifetimes worth of victories and defeats, with amazing highs and terrible lows. Fame and scandal, all cementing Jeff Gordon as a living legend. I think it speaks to the power of... Jeff's impact on the sport in his early years, winning those four championships so early on, how big of a phenomenon that was, because I don't even, I think most people don't really remember the second half of this story.
2: No, no, not at the all. Troubled like we years. were talking about like 2012. I was like, what? <laughs> no way, dude.
1: Yeah. I yeah. thought he retired
2: uh, in like 2000.
1: Yeah. And admittedly, I'm I'm a somewhat casual NASCAR fan. I do watch on weekends, but I don't, I'm not really super caught up with all, all, all the drivers and all the lore, but um. yeah it's just very impressive one that his career lasted that long and two that his impact just kind of overshadows all, all the, the bad finishes and whatnot.
3: not this great driver I don't think he's that great of a TV personality you Gordon? he was on Regis and Philbin no I know Joe. but th- there's this thing, like voice. there's this like push to get sports stars you know in front of the camera all the time and they're always so bland because they're not, you know, trained to be on TV. They're trained to be like.
1: I think it, yeah. I don't. Jeff, I think, uh, and during the NASCAR broadcast, he adds a lot of insight uh, into like race strategy and driver mindset, yeah. of course. But if same he, if with he's, like,
3: you know, interviewing Tyga on Regis, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, what, is, what does he have to talk about?
1: Much in the way that like Tony Romo, I think, is probably like one of the best NFL. Oh, he's he's right now. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Tony Romo, really great. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to Past Gas. Uh, this was really fun to learn about Jeff Gordon once again. Get refreshed on on old, old, old Jeffy there.
3: I want to give a quick shout-out to a homie that I met in Arizona who's a big fan of the podcast, Charlie at the Crescent Ballroom. Uh, him and his big friends listen out. every week, they said, and he was super nice.
1: All right, well, thank you so much for listening to Pass Gas. You can follow the boys at Joe G. Weber, at James Pumphrey, and follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Uh, Joe, put your shirt back on,
3: Joe. Never. I'm doing a five-day no-shirt challenge.
2: (laughs) I'm doing no-shirt member. All right, thank
1: you very much.